Asia Tech Podcast. Voice of the Asian Tech Ecosystem. Hello, welcome to Asia Tech Podcast Stories. Today, we are heading to Saigon, Vietnam to welcome my next guest, Tony Mai. Tony is the CEO and founder of Comply. Obviously, the team is based in Vietnam. The headquarters are in Singapore. Tony, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Graham. It's a pleasure to be here. Just let, let me understand first. I know officially it's Ho Chi Minh City, but everybody who lives there calls it Saigon. So I never mm-hmm. know what the correct name is. So pull us right first. Well, the locals call it Saigon. Right. And so most expats who live there long enough start to adopt the, the, the local term for it. Right. But the official name is still Ho Chi Minh City. Got it. So that's a good way of telling if somebody's just new. Like they don't call it Saigon, right? If they're calling it exactly. Ho Chi Minh City, they must have been new. All right. How, how long exactly. have you been in Saigon now? Uh, six years now. Right. But you were born in Vietnam, right? Where were you born in Vietnam? I was born in Da Nang. Oh, okay. Um, on the coast. And then, yeah. And then my family uh, were refugees and I came to U.S. in uh, 1980 when I was five. Right, right. Okay. Mm-hmm. Oh, this is a fascinating story, isn't it? I mean, you've gone back to Vietnam. Like Don. I mean, we had Don Fan on the show Mm-hmm. Very recently, similar kind of story, isn't it? That you know, people with the Vietnamese heritage want to go back, want to explore it. They understand that it, there's a lot of opportunity there. So we'll talk about that in a minute because that's a really fascinating story, and I'm sure you you know your journey back to Vietnam as well is going to be interesting to the listeners. Let's talk about Comply. What it is that you do? What is the problem that you're solving at Comply? Well, currently, um, you know. Uh, Globally, funds are, are regulated by multiple jurisdictions and, and regulatory bodies, including U.S., EU, U.K., and Asia. So what we do is we focus on um, Singaporean funds um, that or, or funds that have a base in Singapore and um, have to, you know, are obligated by the same regulations as large banks and financial institutions, but don't have the same resources available to mm. them. And so we offer a... Um, AI-powered regulatory interpretation platform that helps them manage a lot of the regulatory changes globally. Asia Tech Podcast. Find out more at atp.show. So what exactly is that? I mean, if you had to explain that to grandma, if you took mm-hmm. the, the AI-powered regulatory thing out, okay. what, what exactly would it be? What does it do? So let's say the FCA releases a new regulation for derivatives trading. Right, you can download that uh, regulation. Okay, upload it to our AI, and our AI will basically interpret section by section for you in kind of more uh, common terms that is easily understandable. So if it's a 50-page document, you don't have to read the whole thing. Just upload it to our AI platform. It will basically condense and give you an overview of each section by section. Right, Mm. and then once you have that, it will also uh, catalog and label the regulation and what's what's referring to, and it will map it to your internal policies and controls. So if there's a new uh, regulation for KYC and you have existing policies for KYC or onboarding new clients, it will suggest to you these policies need to be changed based on this regulation. How, how much resources do financial institutions have to devote to this kind of behavior before you guys came along? So, you know, large institutions have entire compliance teams, right? Right. So that, that do this. And because a lot of the 
70% of compliance work is still manual. It's still sitting down, reading the regulation, and then going back to your policies and trying to find out which policies are relevant to this regulation and then changing the policies right. and then tracking those changes to make sure that your teams are applying the changes or, or completing these required tasks to be compliant. Right, and, and the people that are doing this manually in the old school way, are, are they professional, are they lawyers, are they accountants? What it's a mix of, of both. Right. It's a mix of both. So compliance is something kind of people end up in. It's something people don't really right. aim for. So uh, you get a lot of different varied backgrounds. Some people come from operations, come from legal, come from right. accounting. But you can't just, uh, what I'm trying to get to is you can't outsource that to India, right? And somebody to work on oh. five bucks an hour. Oh, no, work. definitely not. Yeah, definitely right. so not. Th these are people, th this is expensive work. And mm -hmm. there's obviously, a, I guess, a shortage of people that can do this kind of work as well, like regularly. So it's, it's an issue for financial institutions. You're, so how do you, because I'm curious about this, is how do you crunch a 50-page document down to just the main points? Because, I mean, I don't know. Some of the listeners may know. I don't know if you know, but my background's AI. But I did oh, awesome. Yeah, I did AI in 1995, Tony. Like when, you know, if you graduated with AI in 1995, you became an English teacher. <laughs> you didn't sort of like go in and change compliance departments in, in financial institutions like you guys are doing. So what's the framework there? Because you know, that must have required a ton of testing. Yeah, so, so um, you know, it's using what they call NLP, natural language right. you know, programming. And so um, it's actually, there's a lot of, AI, you know, users use AI and they don't, not even aware of it, like spam detection. That uses right. type of AI for kind of natural language uh, programming. And also a lot of, now there's a lot of available bots, you know, like that help do customer service mm. for, for a lot of, um, for a lot of uh, platforms. And so the technology is, is, is readily available and it's, 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 it's advanced quite a bit since you've done it. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, Come on. It has 20 so, years, 30 years. <laughs> Yes. So the models and algorithms are out there. It just uh, we're focusing it towards specifically for financial institutions. Right. Because I I don't know if the listeners have been aware of it, but they may have used those. There are some online services. I can't remember the names mm -hmm. of them where you can you can paste text into you know a field and it will condense it down. But I often find that the, the answers it comes out with is rubbish. It's just like more work. I don't know how how sort of developed those are, but they're they're free online services, right? So I think people's understanding of being able to crunch large amounts of text and turn it into something meaningful are based on some quite basic and you know rough tools that are available on the internet. And you know maybe people use Google Translate, which has improved a heck of a lot in mm -hmm. the last few years. I mean, obviously that's driven by AI and pattern recognition as well. Where are we now with the sort of technology behind all of this in terms of, you know, taking text and turning it into stuff which is, you know, just taking the salient points out of it? Well, it, it's, it's come quite a long bit, and, but it still needs that, expert, that domain expertise. Right. So they've applied it for different, of course, you know, everyone's familiar with the Google Translator, right, um, that helps translate documents. But for what we're doing in terms of condensing these like huge, uh, you know, like legal documents with a lot, a lot of financial jargon, um, we are working closely, our AI team is working closely with our legal advisors and compliance officers to kind of, um, you know, provide a, a, uh, a brief kind of, of review that's understandable. Right. And so it's a lot of constant training. So, you know, we have to teach it the kind of lingo, the financial lingo, right? Then also um, the, the style and theme of each regular is 
regulators are different too as well globally. So, you know, the FCA has a certain type of style of mm. writing a regulation and what they really mean. And then the U.S. is different with SEC. And then Singapore's regulatory body, the MAS, also has you know, a different uh, kind of way of writing regulations. Got it. Now I understand. I've got a clearer picture of it. Thanks for that. Because it's like your AI algorithm is very domain specific because you're training it to understand within a, a very sort of defined parameters. You know, within you couldn't then say, okay, right, I want you to read yes. this volume of poetry. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, if, you, if you uploaded Shakespeare, it wouldn't know what, what the hell you're talking about. Right, right. But, <laughs> so, but I mean, just, just as a theory, I mean, could it could yeah. it do that? I mean, if, if you just focused on training it within those parameters? Or is it yes, because, def- you know, if the financial information is very defined, isn't it? It's going to be about certain products, certain outcomes, and mm-hmm. so on. But, you know, like when you talk about Shakespeare, it could be talking about love, death, whatever. Exactly. So we're lucky that in regulations, they're very kind of bland and very direct. Right. right. They don't use a lot of cliches. They don't use a lot of slang terms that requires deeper meaning. You know, it's usually very straightforward and direct. And so the regulation, the regulations are uh, much easier to condense because of, of that quality. Yeah. So, so what kind of skills do you need to build uh, a team around that? Is it, is it people who know AI? Is it people who are developers, people who know the financial industry? I mean, who have you got in your team at Comply? So it's actually consists of three components to build a really usable AI product. Of course, you need the data scientists, right, mm. who are good at uh, building the algorithms and the models for training the AI. But you also need the, the, the domain experts, the legal advisors, the compliance team, because they, can, they are the ones that provide the data sets right. to be able to train the AI. Right. right? And then the, the, the part that a lot of people aren't aware of is, is you also need kind of product guys, just mm. because you have a tool that works, it's got to be a usable tool for the market. Mm-hmm. Right? If it's too complex, if it's too complicated, no one's really going to use it. Yeah. So, so what do you, I mean, how do you actually sell that? Do you sell it into uh, financial institutions? Do you sell it into, I mean, what was the sales process for a product like that? It's a SaaS model. So it's, right, a, okay. it's a, based on subscription. And because um, the, the, it's a very defined user base, um, you know, it's, some of it's a little bit referral, some of it's still door to door, and some of it's going to organizations and getting the awareness out there. Because the adoption for RegTech and FinTech is actually, in Southeast Asia, it's, it's more so, they're very open to it in Singapore. Mm. But the in in the in the regulatory and compliance departments, they are just so overwhelmed and burdened with you know just constant day to day work, they don't have time to really kind of uh, you know research you know possible solutions and tools like ours. Right, because well, that that's why I asked because they're so busy and they're so they're, they're drowning under paperwork. How do you actually sell that into them when obviously this is going to fix a lot of their problems, but they're too busy to step outside of the problem, to think about fixing the problem, if you see what I mean. It's like, you know, how does that process work for you? Do you, you turn up? Do you present to them? Do you organize webinars? Or is it at conferences? What works best for you? Yeah, you, you, you understand the, the problem exactly. They are, they are drowning in work because of just so much day-to-day, you know, new updates on regulations and stuff. And so we, we have a strategy of, of reaching them at conferences mm. through associations and organizations for, for compliance officers and um, also at events. And, and, and we plan to do workshops in Singapore as well right, because right. You, you have to put in a lot of face time because um, it's a very closed community because for them, you know, financial institutions, um, 
they're very private. They don't like to share a lot of information. Yeah. And, and so, um, you know, they, they kind of, it's kind of a closed community in terms of, of, of that aspect. Mm. So it, you do have to put in kind of, you have to, the main focus is you have to earn their trust first. Right. right. And so your background, Tony, is do you come from the world of finance? Um, actually, no, I, 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 I'm a serial entrepreneur. I right. owned my first business at 19. Wow. <laughs> so what were you I've doing at doing, 19? I opened up a karaoke bar. <laughs> awesome. So, so that's that's a really bad combination. Did you uh, wait, 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 yeah. wait, just back up a little bit because you went to Wharton, right? Did you do yes. that whilst you were at Wharton or No, actually um I went to Wharton later in life. I oh. went to college when I was 16. Right. And gotcha. I did a year in college in California and decided that it was kind of it wasn't for me and I went to go into the business world and so um at 19 I had my first business. Right, right. So you did a career, I mean, I want to know a little bit about this because often that's a really good insight into your style of being an entrepreneur and a karaoke mm-hmm. bar. Mm-hmm. Why did you choose that? Um, I had a partner who, uh, who, who um, you know, was interested in doing with me. And um, we, at the time, this was back in the, what, early 90s when karaoke was just really coming to the, to the Bay Area. Right, right. And so um, we selected a location that didn't have any. So we actually, we basically had a monopoly. That's when I first learned about monopolies, <laughs> <laughs> right? And then, um, and then also about structuring, you know, because uh, uh, to be, I'm only 19, so I'm not old enough to have liquor, right? <laughs> wow, yeah, exactly. I mean, you're not allowed, old enough to be in a bar. <laughs> yes, exactly. Well, so the, 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 the thing was that, you can't drink it, but you're old enough to to work in a bar. Right. Okay. Gotcha. All right. <laughs> so you know, you know, you could be the, uh, the the bus boy, or you know, but you can't just you can't drink it, or you or be the bartender. So how, every, how long did you? How long did that last for you? Oh, um, so that was my very first business, and that's what the, that's what got me addicted to being an entrepreneur. Right. Um, I built it up, and six months later, I sold it for two x what I invested in. Right. Awesome. So who did you sell yeah. it to? You know, the bar owner. Surprisingly, the waitress. Oh, wow. There you go. So, so and her that, boyfriend took right. it over. It was demonstrating cash flow, easy yes. sell for them. Yes. So how did you decide on karaoke? I mean, I, I'm always curious about this question because those people, you know, we live in a world where it's very easy to start a business like a, a tech business, right? Mm-hmm. The barriers mm-hmm. to entry for anybody yes. is quite small. Mm-hmm. But, you mm-hmm. know, there was a time when it was hard to start a business karaoke yes. business you have to buy you have to rent a bar you have to buy all mm-hmm. the equipment and so on so i'm always curious about why people pick certain types of businesses and i remember i mean tony shay zappos i think he was mm-hmm. vietnamese immigrant as well i mean his family so he i mean he his first business before zappos was selling pizza <laughs> yes. so and you know again it was like okay uh well he realized that it was quite profitable to sell pizzas and he was actually mm-hmm. buying the pizzas i think from a pizza restaurant and selling it on with a markup at the very beginning right uh-huh. so it, it's kind of like you know pizza business karaoke these, these aren't you know the 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 big unicorn businesses that we kind of keep being fed in the world of you know entrepreneurship yes and you sort of see those you think but they're very interesting they're sort of like you know uh, you learn so much when you do these businesses because they're not sort of like you know mega growth businesses you learn a lot more about like customer service you learn more about risk you know more about the fact because you're with customers on a daily basis you see them you talk to them you know you talk to everybody in that environment you learn 
a lot. What did you learn from your karaoke experience? Oh, the, 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 this was I learned. Yeah, yeah, I learned so much. It was. It was basically is when I first learned about hacking. Okay, so now everyone thinks of there's like growth hacks, right? Hmm. And, and and acquisition hacks. But it, during that time, I I learned how to hack. You know, running a business because um, in California, the only people that can remodel is either a licensed contractor or the owner of the building. Right, mm-hmm. and so when we were when we were renovating, we did we didn't have a lot of funds to hire a, 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 a contractor. Right, so I convinced the landlord to, hey, um, you know, me and my partner will do most of these renovations ourselves. We don't have a lot of money. Would you be willing to claim that you know you helped you know you 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 did the renovations and, and sign off that you know that you know that was that was the case because we, mm-hmm. we can't afford to hire a contractor and we really want to come in here and my you know we have experience doing a little bit of remodeling and. And and the and I was I was lucky the owner agreed. He was right. a, he he signed up that he did the, he did the remodeling so we didn't have to get a licensed contractor, which been you know fifty dollars an hour. It's very expensive. Mm-hmm. And so we did most of the minor remodeling ourselves. And then, of course, we didn't have a, we didn't have money put in the kitchen. But luckily, right next door was a pizza shop. So I I, I talked to the owner of the pizza shop saying, Hey, would you be willing to provide you know discounted food to my to my clients? Um, you know. Um, and then we, you know, we'll guarantee you all the business. Mm. And he agreed, and so we basically cut a window in the wall between his shop and my shop, and we placed orders, and he would just hand it across. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. That's a real hack, isn't it? You cut a yeah, window in the right. wall, and just so, pass, passing the pizzas through. Literally a window. So we had a full kitchen. You know, we, we had a full menu, right? Yeah. And then you know, he he gave us a discounted rate. So I think we were making maybe like you know twenty percent you know margin on each of the items, right? And then we had our liquor. And then the karaoke. So there you, you, know, I, you, you learn to be very creative because at that time there was no VCs or funding for the type of business. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? But that teaches you a different skill, doesn't it? Because I think if somebody threw a lot of money and you, you could easily get the renovations done, you probably would have just splashed out, spent a lot of money, and maybe it wouldn't have been profitable. Because, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And we were profitable for, by a second month. Right. Yeah. So. Well, you're hustling as well. I mean, I always, I always <laughs> exactly. kind of respect entrepreneurs when I listen to their stories. I mean, I listened to Richard Branson, I think is a great example. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, there's, there's a thousand entrepreneurs like him out there or, you know, millions, I should say. But, you know, his, his sort of story is like, he's got that ability, a bit like you, to go and ask. So if it's not quite right, he'll go over here and ask somebody and make a cheeky deal, you know, an offer, which mm-hmm. is kind of like, Ah, uh, you know, maybe most entrepreneurs might be thinking, "Oh, I can't ask for that. That's that'll insult them. They'll think I'm, you know, they'll get offended." But that ability to go and ask and offer something and try and structure that deal, Richard Branson has a real knack of that, and that's how he's able to pull off some amazing deals, like with airlines and so on. I, I think the story of his airline wasn't it, was that he was in a an airport stuck in somewhere in the Caribbean, and they were trying to they were trying to get out. And they, all the flights were cancelled, um, but he just sort of got a chalkboard together and said, "And you know, I'll go and speak to I don't know the full story. I'll go and speak to these people. I can I can rent this airplane, and then I can go and speak to these people who are passengers, and I can put a chalkboard up and say who wants to buy a ticket on my airplane. You know, that, this is quite extreme, but it's that whole ability ability to go and ask and put a deal together. Which sometimes I look at 
entrepreneurs today and founders, and it's it's all about technology. I feel that's a little bit lacking. I mean, with yourself, with what you're doing now at Comply, do you feel yourself going and asking in kind of similar ways like you were doing in the the karaoke world? Um, it, it's the startup world is a completely different uh, uh, beast compared to what I'm using because I'm more traditional. You have to be profitable. You know, you, you're kind of self-funded a lot of times, right? Or you're borrowing for friends and family, right? Um, and then for us, it's, you know, for startups, it's about growth, right? As for a traditional business, it's about profitability. Yeah. You still have to hustle, but you're, you're hustling for different, a lot of startups are hustling for funding, right? And, mm-hmm. and, and, and for, for a, a traditional business, we're hustling for sales. Right. Right. Cash flow. <laughs> and so, yeah. ex- exactly, cash flow. You know, for us, cash flow is king. Yeah. But for you know startups, you can be you know bleeding cash all you know for five years, and you're still considered a successful business. Right. So yeah. when you talk about comply, do you consider yourself? Which would you be? Would you be a, a startup chasing growth? Do you have investment, or are you are you bootstrapping it, cash positive, and so on? What's the story? Well, well for the past year, I've been bootstrapping it, um, and um, and now we're we're actually going to do we're in going to our seed round funding. Right. But I still I still carry the principles of you, sh- you need to be profitable. Right, you know, I'd right, like to be right, profitable right. within the first year, right? And by being that, I think that would dif- differentiate me differentiate me from a lot of other startups who are just asking for more money. Right. Do Do you think that that's a a bad thing in any way? Chuan? for me, I'm, I'm like you, Tony. I'm completely the cash flow entrepreneur you know mm-hmm. people talk about balance sheets not interested people talk about you know profitability well yeah I, I think that's important at the end of the day is is there more money coming in than going out I want to look at the ledger so that's kind of how I think and it's a bit old school and I think it might hold me back because there's that sort of idea of going for growth spending all your money you know get you know it doesn't matter if you go cash negative as long as you're just getting in users, get growing, 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 scaling, scaling, scaling. I mean, have you found it a challenge? Have you had to retrain the way you think about all of these things? In, in the terms of, of funding, yes, because I'm not used to asking for money. It's usually been right. self-funded and I bootstrapped uh, it. But I can see the benefits of you know, having that capital for, uh, for growth. Mm. I can see the, but at the same time, you know, some of the most successful startups – uh, like Trello, um, even Facebook, they, they were still profitable or at least break even. Well, right. There's there's a term that I call um ramen profitable, right? Even Airbnb was what they call ramen profitable, right? Right, <laughs> where um you know they just weren't bleeding millions of dollars every year and and going to the next round to to stay afloat. Right, right. So I mean, a lot like you say, I mean, people are raising rounds just for cash flow, really, just to kind of mm-hmm. plug last month's expenses. In a way, right? But yes. So, I guess it's the balance, isn't it? I mean, if you're not bleeding cash, then when you inject cash into the business, it's not simply going to pay huge overheads. It's going to actually fund growth. That's the difference, isn't it? And I guess yes. that's why it's important to bring that kind of mindset across, where you count the pennies, so to speak. But that I think is important yes. for any kind of entrepreneur. I wonder as well: is that, is that sort of behind your move to go? back to Vietnam because you spotted an arbitrage opportunity there. Can you tell us a little bit about how you got back to Vietnam? Um, actually, so I was, it was after the global financial crisis. I was in real estate and I had sold off my, uh, my, my, uh, my last project and there was nobody, no banks were lending for any new projects. So a friend of mine said, you know, I'm heading back to Vietnam. So why don't you come back with me and, you know, take a little break and check it out. 
Um, he had been asking me to go back to Vietnam for several years and saying that it's, it's a great opportunity, the market's growing, and you know this is the place to be. And mm. so I finally um, decided six years ago to, to take a to take a take a trip, you know. And then um, I was just blown away by the opportunities and the people. Uh, being myself Vietnamese, Vietnamese Americans, you know, have a certain perception of Vietnam, like right. like similar to everybody else like oh it's kind of third world country it's poor it's but when Nam. i came yeah exactly it's now and then when i came there i saw more bentleys and and and, and rolls royces uh, uh. on the streets than i saw in san francisco uh, uh. <laughs> and 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 the cars there are all paid in cash there's no right, financing right, yeah, for these yeah. things or lease or leases right and so i was just blown away and i saw you know a great opportunity so i called my Called home and told my mom, "Hey, uh, sell my car. I'm not coming back for a while." Wow. <laughs> so, so you already went there to check it out, but you doubled down. Yes, yes, and you know, so um, and and I, I haven't looked back. I haven't yeah. been back to the U.S. in six years. What was it about Vietnam that really sold you on the fact that this is the right decision to make? And you bear in mind, this is 2012. Mm-hmm. And it's a very different animal today as well, Vietnam. I mean, it's the fastest growing market in the world. I think about 8% GDP growth year on year. Mm-hmm. But back in 2012, obviously, you know, if you're growing at those kind of rates in six years, you change very fast, right? So it would have been a lot more underdeveloped back then. What sold you? The people. The people. They they were are very uh, entrepreneurial. They're all yeah. hustlers. When you come to Vietnam... You don't see that many beggars because there are 65-year-old women on the street selling coconuts. Yeah, yeah, exactly. There's, there's, if you've ever been to Vietnam, there's like there's 50-year-old, 70-year-old men out selling lottery tickets. They're all hustling. Everybody's on the make, right? Exactly, exactly. It's a very (laughs) entrepreneurial spirit, and they're very hard workers. Yeah. You know, um, there's a there's a large educated base, and they're all young. Yeah. Majority of them are very young. You know, it's and so it's a great atmosphere for for a lot of with a lot of energy you know and a lot of enthusiasm and excitement to kind of you know put vietnam on the map was it easier for you like did you speak vietnamese uh, my vietnamese was um I, my family is originally from the central so we have the central is known for having a very difficult dialect and right. accent and then on top of that, I speak with an English accent, right? <laughs> <laughs> so, so my Vietnamese is about 60, 70%. It's gotten much right, right. better since I've been here, but I'm not fluent in Vietnamese. So, I mean, for Vietnamese, Vietnamese, people who grew up there and, you know, lived there most of their, all of their life, how do they, what sort of box do they put you in? Because you're, you look Vietnamese, but you don't mm-hmm. speak like a local Vietnamese. Are, are they curious about you? I'm just wondering how they reacted to you. Well, it's 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 fortunate that I'm a what they call a vicu, which is a foreign Vietnamese, because they feel that we're more educated. Yeah. They assume that we have more experiences, and we, they also assume that we're also richer. Right. <laughs> but th- that that could invite some kind of negativity as well. I mean, in some countries, right? Because there's a bit of jealousy, maybe a bit of fear about who you are. But how is it in Vietnam? They they embrace uh, Vietnamese Americans coming back mm. and, and and you know trying to start a business or or trying to you know uh, do new ventures here because you know they feel that it, it helps the country because we're bringing back you know foreign experiences foreign global knowledge yeah and and it can only it can only promote and and lift up the country yeah th- there's a real sense isn't it in Vietnam which I think surprises people when they go there and I was surprised I went to Saigon 
last, I say Saigon now, I'd call it Ho Chi Minh City. I went to mm-hmm. Saigon last year, um, no, a couple of years ago now. And uh, I remember walking into a hotel and booking into the hotel, checking in, and the the guy at the hotel could speak some English, asking me what I did. Um, I told him that I was in startups. And then he, he just went into this spiel about, he worked at this hotel, but he was also working on a startup. <laughs> it was like, yeah, okay. And he was like, I don't know if he was pitching me for investment or, you know, this sort of like, do, you know, do you know any, like, where do you live? I say, well, I'm living in Japan. Okay. Do you know anybody that works for these companies? So it was a real hustle. It wasn't aggressive in any way. Like, you know, you go to some countries where people are like, oh yeah, come and have a look at my, you know, carpet shop or whatever. And it's like, they, it's quite aggressive, isn't it? Like sales in your mm-hmm. face. But I, I really sort of, it was quite, you know, heartwarming to see people really trying and not, not in an aggressive way that everybody was trying to make their lives a bit better. And there was some interesting data that came out recently. There was a survey and the survey, basically there was a couple of surveys which I want to share with you, Tony, and get your thoughts on this is that they surveyed all these countries in the world. There were two different surveys. One was by YouGov. I think the other one, I can't remember who did the other one, but they asked, the first one um, asked about immigration you know, is immigration a good thing or a bad thing? And, and Vietnam ranked quite highly compared to other countries as well. But the most interesting one is the survey that asked this question. It said, is globalization a force for good? And they ranked all the countries in the world that had answered. And so those at the top thought that globalization was the force for good. And those at the bottom, you know, were very negative about globalization. And interestingly, at the bottom were France, UK, USA, <laughs> I can't remember the fourth one, but three, you know, old school colonial countries, right? Mm-hmm. At the top, interestingly, was number three, and I'll have to get this data out and somebody can correct me if they're listening. Number three was India. Number two was the Philippines. And number one was Vietnam. And, you know, if you think about it, those three countries historically have been at the receiving end of globalization in a very negative way, haven't they? You know, if you look at their history, but... Mm-hmm. I was just amazed, like, wow, my imagery, my image of Vietnam has been really challenged by that because I would thought, okay, may- maybe they are growing pretty fast, but they may be quite suspicious of the outside world because of the history, right? But that just completely blew me away. Well, it's because they're embracing the the opportunity that it brings, you know, the the technology gains, the uh, the you know, um, the the gains in terms of increased wages for them. Um, and, and just you know, being connected to the connected to the global community, mm. you know, Vietnam is actually a very wired country. Um, you know, we have a very high concentration of mobile phone usage and connectivity. Mm. Um, also, Vietnam is second only to Singapore in the number of incubators and startups. No surprisingly, way. really? Yes, yes. So there are there uh, only Singapore has more incubators, co-working spaces, accelerators, and uh, and um, startup you know funds. Than, than Vietnam. So Vietnam is second in Southeast Asia. Right, right. Okay, that's really interesting. Well, yes. you know, if you, I mean, people put Vietnam in that bucket of Southeast Asia, don't they? They put them mm-hmm. all together because not a lot of people know a lot. I mean, obviously, yourself, you grew up knowing about Vietnam from, you know, as soon as you could read or write or listen to people's stories, you, you, you absorbed all that. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the, for a lot of people, like we say, you know, Vietnam's Nam, it's kind of like, you know, it's communist, blah, 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 all mm-hmm. that kind of stuff. And then it's Southeast Asia, so it's it's in there with Indonesia and you know Malaysia and all these Southeast Asian countries, and you know it's sort of a bit wild, it's a bit crazy, 
full mm-hmm. of corruption, maybe, because that's what they're like down there. Vietnam seems to be interesting. It's, it's a bit different, isn't it? I think that, I, I don't know how to describe it. Maybe you could do better. I think it's a, it's a bit more like China in a way, like in terms of the way it's organized, that work ethic compared to South, Southeast Asia. You know, it's a bit more like, you know, if you go to Jakarta, you understand what I mean. Yes, yes, I, I totally agree. I mean, Vietnam is, I think, one of the best places for the uh, of the best mix of old and new. It, it is very similar to China in terms of it wants to adopt a lot of the new technologies and the um, and the um, you know the opportunities, but it, it still tries to stick to its traditions and its its kind of its core, mm. like China does. Ch- China still you know is very traditional um, Mandarin. Um, they still believe in you know um, a lot of the the the, the you know the older beliefs and, and, and practices, even though it's a very modern country with a lot of high tech and innovative, you know, uh, technologies coming out of China, but it, it still, it still holds to its, to its, to its core values mm. and nationalism. Yeah. Can, can you tell me a little bit about, um, your, your, your thoughts on why it is that Vietnam has so many developers? What, what's going on? I mean, it seems that, you know, the idea that you might outsource a development team to Vietnam originally may have been simply cost but now there's a very high level of work going on in vietnam what is that why is that well i think vietnam has an has the ideal mix for it because it has a very young population right so there's so just in terms of of numbers it has a lot more kind of fresh graduates and university uh, uh students mm. uh, secondly vietnam has always scored high globally on in, in math olympics Right. right, so it's a very it's a very strong uh, mathematics based country. So the, the 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 education here in math is 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 you know it's it's recognized as as very strong. So that's an ideal fit for for uh, for a kind of converting to a developer or you know IT uh, mm-hmm. position. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of coders coming out of Vietnam, very high level, especially it seems to be like on database side as well. Originally, there was a lot of that yes. work going on there, isn't there? Okay, and what what about the, now we sort of talk about the developers, we understand that they're, they're large development houses in Vietnam. Do you Do you see entrepreneurs coming through? I mean, obviously people like yourself, but you, you've sort of, grew, you grew up in the US, came back mm-hmm. to Vietnam. What about, mm-hmm. you know, local Vietnamese who grew up there, are they now sort of picking up and starting startups there? What's the scene like now? Oh, yes, definitely. The startup scene is very hot here, and it's really trendy to be in a startup. Right. You know, it's, it's kind of the new, uh, the new fad is, you know, oh, I'm working for a startup. And about maybe I'd say 30% of the, of the staff that leave after they've trained here, they go on to startups right. of, of, my, of my staff. Yeah, so <laughs> it, it, it's a very, you know, they, they, they come in, get the training, get the experience, and then working with global clients and kind of improving their English skills. Mm. And then, you know, they go off to do a startup. Yeah, that's great. I mean, that's, that's how it happens, isn't it? You have those sort of like, those, those core, air, those centers of talent which nurture mm. people. They could be incubators, they could be companies like yourself. But that sort of creates that knock-on, doesn't it? Do, do you um, what, what sort of areas of startups are interesting in Saigon at the moment? What are people what are, when they leave your company, for example? What kind of startups do they start? What's sort of typical in Saigon? So what, what I'm seeing now is is there's a the majority of startups now are in um, finance for for payments really? because you know there's 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 the huge a potential for the you know the unbanked here uh, you know a lot of uh, a lot of the majority over half the 
Vietnamese population don't have a bank account. Because mm-hmm. right? you have to remember, 70% of Vietnam is still in the rural areas. You know, 30% live in the major cities, Saigon, uh, Hanoi, and Da Nang. But 70% of the population is still out in the rural areas. So a lot of the rural areas don't have access to, you know, credit cards and, and you know, digital wallets and payments. And so, you know, uh, uh, large institutions are seeing that as a huge opportunity to, to you know, become the payment options for those for those people. Mm-hmm. Uh, so a lot large a large uh, uh, of the funding is going into um, payments payment mm-hmm. startups. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's fascinating, isn't it? I mean, what about the the peer to peer lending market in Vietnam? Do you have sort of platforms for that? Do, you know, because that usually sort of goes with that market as well, doesn't it? Yeah, but but the lending is is much more regulated. Yeah. Um, uh, industry, so it's it's much harder to get the licenses for peer-to-peer lending. There are one or two startups in that space, um, but what what I, what I found surprising is that there's actually a few AI labs in Vietnam. Mm. So there's a couple of Japanese and Korean companies that have uh, um, based their labs in Vietnam. Um, also, uh, Centify, which is a, a European company, yeah. uh, set up a, a, a research and and development lab in Vietnam. So there's a few companies here that are basing their A&I research, AI research. AI research. Yeah, that's interesting, Vietnam. isn't it? Yeah. Yes, yes, especially, yes. Especially now that you're just over the border from China as well, you wonder if any mm-hmm. of that's going to come across as well because th- there will come a time, isn't it, where a Chinese developer will probably in, in AI might charge as much as the guy in Silicon Valley, who knows, right? It's, it's kind of getting to that stage where so much money being thrown at AI in China at the moment with these sort of centers of excellence like Alibaba and Baidu and so on, that now they're going to find that a good AI developer is going to be extremely expensive to hire. So, you know, that must be a real opportunity for these Vietnamese developers, right? Definitely, definitely. There's um, the um, National University of Vietnam has started a program of JVNI. It's a John Von Newman Institute um, that specializes in data right. science, and, and you get a master's. Pro- master's. There you go. I didn't recognize that name straight away from my 1995 degree, Von Neumann. So. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> it's one of those names. It's like Turing, you know. It's like one of those names from uh-huh. you know, sort of like well established in artificial intelligence, right? So you know, one of the mm-hmm. pioneers. Oh, it's fascinating. Do you, do you think that Vietnam is? a market for somebody to go and set up in if they didn't have that, if they weren't an American Vietnamese, Vietnamese American, if they didn't have that connection there, if they didn't speak Vietnamese. I mean, could I go there and set up in Vietnam? What sort of challenges would I have? Do you think it would be a wise decision? Oh, I, I, surprisingly, the expat community here is very closely knit. You know, uh, just just like you're saying, you know, I, I, I know Don, I know a lot of the other startup founders. Mm. And so there's a lot of support here. And it's one of the great things about the, the startup community here is it's very open and supportive. In other areas, they're kind of uh, other countries that might be a little bit closed off um, or not as uh, willing to share. But in, in Vietnam, especially in Saigon, it's it's a it's a very supportive community. So even if you don't speak Vietnamese, you know mm-hmm. you can meet people here who will help, who will, who will hook you up with a, maybe a, a a partner that's a local, mm-hmm. you know, uh, um, co-founder, or you know help you navigate the kind of business side of of you know, having a biz, having a development shop in Vietnam. So yeah. it's not very difficult. Well, I mean, I sense that as well. I mean, that, you know, in Vietnam, there's a real sense that they want to do business with you as an outsider because they see, you know, if you look at the size of Vietnam, it's a small market by comparison to the world, mm-hmm. isn't it? That, you know, if you, if you were a local developer or 
a startup in China, you could get away with just serving China. Like in Beijing, for example, you wouldn't have to go outside of China. But in Vietnam, they understand, I mean, Vietnam has been very export focused for a number of years, hasn't it? They understand that opportunity lies selling to the rest of the world. So there's that real sort of mindset, isn't it? That they they see people from the outside as, as, a, as a bridge in a way and a way for them to build their businesses. So there's, I really get that sense of openness there in Vietnam. Absolutely. They see, they see anybody from outside as an opportunity yeah. you know, to, to, expand, to expand their business, to expand their knowledge, and to expand their resources and contacts. Yeah. So they're very open to, to foreigners. No, it's all good. Okay, so I mean, last question, and I'm curious about where it goes from here. So you've been in Vietnam six years, and you are, how, how old are you now, Tony? I'm 43. 43. Mm-hmm. So where do you think, where do you think, you know, Vietnam will be? Because, you know, you spent, you know, a number of years in, uh, you spent, you know, I'm trying to work it out in my head now. I mean, you're only two years younger than me, but you've been in, <laughs> you've been in the States for, how many years? What, f- nearly 40 years? You came to the States when you, how old? I can't remember. Five. 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 Right? So 38 years. Yeah. So you, okay, so you've seen that. You've seen 32 years in the States. Huh? You've seen mm-hmm. change of, of you know, you've, you've gone from all, all the different, the, the cycles, the dot-com era, all of that. And now we've sort of seen in this very short period, Asia, and particularly places like Vietnam emerge, um, where do we go from here? I mean, if we're growing at 8% a year, does it keep going like this? Can you sort of forecast? I mean, I know it's a bit unfair to ask you and put it on the spot, but 10 years mm-hmm. from now, what was Vietnam going to look like? Because I've heard people say, rightly or wrongly, that, you know, Vietnam's like China, but just 11 years behind. You know, but that I, was- would, I, would, I would agree with that statement. Uh, you know, in, in terms of overall, I think, because um, I, I only know one kind of uh, niche section of Vietnam, the IT sector. Right. But overall, I, I would agree with that statement that, that Vietnam is about 10 or 11 years behind right. uh, China. In what way? So. Though, but how do you quantify that? I mean, to somebody who's neither been to, isn't, hasn't been to Vietnam, what does that mean? Well, we, we've, we've adopted and embraced the manufacturing and exporting, right? right. So we're, we're getting good at that. But we still don't have the infrastructure. We don't have the, the big ports. We don't have the high-speed trains. We don't have the, you know, the, the, the six or seven-lane roads to transport and freeways. Mm-hmm. So... You know, uh, Saigon currently now is building its first um, rail system, hmm. and it's 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 three years behind and over budget, and you know, so we still don't have very good public transportation in the cities. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But will that change? I mean, if you were to do, a, uh, you know, whenever we talk about these these markets, people always like to compare them, um, right? You know, unfairly, I think, but it always helps us kind of measure where you know Vietnam is in its growth and. You know, if you if you if you compare, for example, like Vietnam with Thailand, for example, mm-hmm. you know, Thailand GDP is, I think, per capita is about twice as much as Vietnam. But yes. you know, Vietnam is growing much faster. So, mm-hmm. you know, will, will we come to a point? Will Vietnam overtake these countries? Will it be more developed? Will it look like China in years to come? I don't think it would be a, a, as advanced as China because China just has so much mass. Mm. You know, and, and, and the people, you know, so that that gives it a great advantage. I think it would be very similar to Thailand, but uh, but but uh, ahead of Thailand mm. in, in ten years. I am hoping because I see that we have this, we have, you know, just as many resources. You know, in terms of great people, good location, uh, you know, stable political environment, um, and then the the and tr- Vietnam is very active in trade trade agreements. Mm. 
So, you know, and, and that's one thing great about the country that, you know, we have, we have a dozen uh, of, of uh, you know, um, bilateral trade agreements, and, and most of them we're involved in, and most of the major ones, you know, we're involved in, and so that we can kind of uh, expedite that, that, you know, that, uh, that uh, can bridge between global countries. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm very positive about Vietnam. I think it, mm-hmm. it, for me, it represents the most exciting growth story in Southeast Asia. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, if you do look at the comparisons, obviously Singapore, well, I mean, that's not really Southeast Asia. It's a different market, isn't it? I mean, geographically it's there, but, you know, it's developed in a way and it's it's mm-hmm. sort of reached its, now, now it's sort of going through a different growth curve with startups and so on and investment. But you have, you know, I mean, what, one thing that really excites me about Vietnam is by comparison to other Southeast Asian countries like Indonesia and and, and Thailand is that it seems to me like the growth path is a lot more straightforward. Like Thailand and Indonesia, it's a lot more complicated. You know, there's a lot more interests involved. There's a lot more sort of detours. It sort of grows and then something happens and, you know, it sort of goes off the rails a little bit, right? But Vietnam to me, because it's export, everybody's got this kind of, not everybody, but they've got this very strong work ethic. It seems Mm -hmm. like I'm a lot more confident that that will be sustained. You know, I can't see anything you know, throwing it off path in the next 10 years, to me, that makes it really exciting because you look at what's happening in Thailand or Indonesia, it's like, okay, you know, it's just kind of getting a bit bogged down in a lot of, you know, people say, oh, Thailand's great for startups. I think it is, but I don't think it's realizing its potential, you know, in many ways also because it has other industries like tourism and so on, you know, like like that. But Vietnam for me, because it's a manufacturing base, it's building up the developing base, it has the uh, you know it, it, it has the proximity with China as well. I think that makes it very exciting, and I'm very bullish about it. I'm not showing up and committing and doubling down and living there, but <laughs> who knows? You know, in the future, it could be an option for people like me. And 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 I and I'm bullish on Vietnam as well because I see that the government policies and the people's motives are aligned. They really yeah. want to put you know Vietnam on the global map. You know, they really want to grow the country and they really want to kind of, you know, explore, you know, all the opportunities available to them. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so and, and so the, the good thing is because Thailand's been kind of uh, politically unstable for the past few years because of the, the military coup. Um, Indonesia is kind of segregated because they have a lot of major islands. Mm. Right? Each island is, is run by different uh, parties or different um, kind of leaders mm. um, as where Vietnam has a very united front. Um, similar to China, and and they're looking towards the same goals as the people is to kind of put ourselves out there and and you know take take advantage of these opportunities available. Yeah, exciting times. I, I do foresee ten years. You're going to see skylines in Vietnam, like in Saigon, maybe in Hanoi, that look mm-hmm. like what we're used to in cities like I don't know. Maybe it's pushing it a little bit, but Shenzhen and mm-hmm. Shanghai. But you you're going to start seeing that coming out of Vietnam and I think it's already in progress isn't it so watch this space Tony May everybody thank you so much for coming on to the show and sharing your journey sharing a little bit about comply and um, you know the Vietnam story as well a bit of karaoke thrown in there it's been really inspiring <laughs> we really enjoyed it Tony thanks a lot it was a pleasure Graham thank you for having me you've been listening to Asia Tech Podcast find out more at atp.show